Well, it is a pleasure to be back amongst you. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at, actually, three different passages of Luke, but I'm going to just read one verse to set the stage, so to speak, for what we'll be doing later. That's Luke 23 and verse 43. Luke 23, 43. And we'll come back to this verse um, towards the end of the message. I think there's something very significant about what we just sang. Because what we're about to do here in in reading the Bible and, and in hearing the preaching of the Word comes from a belief and a conviction that God speaks. We're not kind of blundering around here trying to figure out, well, this is what I think God is like, and this is what my experience has been, or this is the way I've analyzed history or something like that. We're here today because God has spoken and we have his word. And that's, that's this book. And so when, when we read the Bible, as was read earlier, as I'm going to be reading now, and as, even as we open up the Bible and, and talk about it, we believe that God himself is speaking. So what we're doing here is really quite supernatural as the Spirit of God helps us. So let's bear that in mind as we hear the words of the Lord. Um, Luke 23, 43, speaking of Jesus, it says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, we have already, in the song that we've sung, prayed a prayer to you, and we would just repeat that again. Speak to us. We know that your word is here before us, but we're also praying that you would overcome that within our hearts that is deaf to your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts, as you did so long ago with Lydia, that that she would listen attentively to what the Apostle Paul was preaching. And we pray that even now that, that you would open up our hearts to listen to your Son, and that the full weight of his glory would come and press his words into our hearts to be like living seeds that produce much fruit. We ask, Lord, that you would watch over my mouth, knowing my foolishness and sinfulness, and that you would tether me to your word so that I might not go far from it, but stay close And only preach what you have said. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in all of us, that we might continue our worship by humbly, fearfully, joyfully, faithfully receiving your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would like to speak to you tonight on what is, I must admit, a difficult topic, and that is the topic of death. 
We have experienced a number of deaths in our own congregation recently. In fact, we just had a funeral this past week. And of course, when you have had a loved one die, not necessarily within the last week, but even within several years or even decades, the topic of death can be very difficult just because it's so painful. We're still grieving. When we've lost a loved one, we're, in a sense, grieving the rest of our lives, right? And death is a difficult subject. But even if we're not grieving because we've been bereaved of someone that we care of, death is a difficult subject because it's a frightening subject. I mean, death is a painful thing, both for the one who is dying and the one whom, whom those in, that he leaves behind. And our culture doesn't help us any in this matter, does it? Death is an awkward subject. You, you don't just go up to somebody, even one of your friends, and just start talking about death and dying. Um, it's, it's not appropriate in our culture to discuss this matter. Furthermore, um, for many people, death is something that is full of questions and unknowns. Uh, Shakespeare called it the undiscovered country. And for many people, death is, well, who knows what happens after death? And, and what right do we even have to speak about death and what comes afterwards? And of course, for some people today, they believe that death for us is really no fundamentally different than the death of a horse or a dog. And once you die, you're just dead. And that's it. That's the end. There is nothing else. You know, I think that the reason why death is a difficult topic for us to talk about is, is even deeper than any of those things. Because deep in our hearts, we all have an awareness that we have done wrong. We've sinned. We've done things that we knew were not right. And we also have an awareness in our hearts that, as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And so death is an uncomfortable topic for us because it reminds us that we've done wrong and we are going to be held accountable for that. And, of course, the Bible tells us that we all die because our first father, Adam, sinned. But, you know... We've got to face death. If we're going to live wisely, we have to be prepared for death. Because unless Jesus comes back first, every single person in this room will die. From the youngest child to the oldest grandma or grandpa. We're all going to die. And the Bible says in Psalm 90 verse 12... Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, if we're going to live well, we have to be prepared to die. We have to have a sense of the shortness and the limits of our lives. And you know, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of death. Because Jesus Christ has conquered death. Jesus says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, dear friends, 
As Christians, we can talk about death, we can face death, we can grapple with death, because Jesus Christ has already died for us, and he has won the victory over death. And therefore, as Christians, we can look forward to the day when Jesus will come back, and when he will raise the dead. And that is our ultimate hope, the victory that when, when we bury someone in the ground, we know they're not staying there forever. That Jesus will return. That the dead will rise. However, that hasn't happened yet, has it? And death is still a reality. Death is the last enemy, the Bible says, that will be overcome. And so we need to know what we should think about death and what death has to teach us and what is going to come after death while we wait for Jesus to come back. So I'm going to present 10 lessons that Jesus gives us about death and the afterlife, and then we're going to talk about some practical applications. So to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to focus on three passages of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. Let's begin with Luke chapter 12. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, back to Luke chapter 12 and verses 16 to 21. Luke 12 and verses 16 to 21. The Lord Jesus Christ told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. My friends, the first lesson that Jesus teaches us about death is simply this. God sends death at his chosen time, not ours. God sends death at his chosen time and not ours. Notice that God says to this man, this night, this night your soul is required of you. He didn't say, look out, death might be near. He didn't say, death could be on the horizon. He said, this is it, mister. Tonight, tonight you're going to die. And there was no negotiation. There was no escape. There was no last-minute implementation of some kind of a plan. That was it. He was done, and he died. And one of the things that Christ is communicating to us here is that death comes on God's timing, and we don't get to decide that. Now, make no mistake, we should be good stewards of our health, right? We should engage in practices that are safe, 
and thoughtful. We have a responsibility that way. But you know, at the end of the day, we are not in control of whether we die and when we die. And when the time comes for you to pass from this world, you will be utterly helpless to stop it from happening. Death will come, and it will not be refused. Now, the second thing that we see from this text, the second lesson that Jesus is teaching us, is that death can suddenly take us away in the midst of life. Death can suddenly take us away in the midst of life. Notice that this man was not aware that he was suffering from some terminal illness. He, he was not in the midst of a war and thinking that, you know, I, I could get killed in this. He was not um, facing some danger. In fact, he was at the top of his game, wasn't he? I mean, he was living large. He, he was reaping this huge harvest. He was counting his money. He was looking at his grain. He had big projects. He had big dreams. And in the midst of it, death suddenly came and just took him away. It, it seems like a total surprise for him. And so... Part of the wisdom that we need to receive from Christ is that death can take us away without warning, even when everything looks good. You you might be young and healthy. You might feel strong. You might feel good. You might be prospering. You might have great things ahead of you in terms of your school or your career. You might be looking forward to retirement, spending time with your grandchildren, and all of a sudden, Out of the blue, as it seems to us at least, there's that blood clot, and you're done. Heart attack, and you're gone. You you hit a, a, a patch of ice on the road that you didn't see, and you spin out of control, and you're you're not there anymore. You're just dead. It that's all it takes. One bullet from a gun, and it might not even be aimed at you, and you're gone. We need to realize that that death doesn't necessarily happen in some neat and tidy way that we can plan for. I hope this is not the case, but it's entirely possible that we could be doing a funeral for one of you this very week. Death can take us away in the midst of life, and, and for the sinner... For a man like this, this man that the Lord addresses as a fool, because he was living as if it, he, he wasn't going to die at all. For the sinner, death can come with, with what Isaac Ambrose called death's arrest. Because the sinner is just going on in his sins. He is continuing on, rebelling against God, breaking God's laws. And he thinks it's going well. He's just living for himself. His sins seem to be working out. Either people don't know or they don't care. They can't do anything about it. He's like a criminal who's counting his loot and thinking all is well. And then all of a sudden, there's the policeman. And the cuffs come out and he's hauled away to jail to await the sentence of the judge. 
My friends, that's what death is for the sinner. It is the arrest of God's officer coming, seizing the sinner, and taking him away to face judgment forever. Death can snatch us away in the midst of life. And thirdly, the third lesson that Jesus is teaching us is that death separates us from all earthly treasures. Death separates us. It severs us. It cuts us off from all our earthly treasures and possessions. Did you notice how much this man was focused on his stuff? Look again at the text. He's saying in verse 17, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Do you hear the repetition? My, my, my. What is his focus on? His focus is on his possessions, and they are his. He owns them. He controls them. The only question in his mind is, what can I do with them? What would be the best way to handle these things? But God says to him, look at verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the answer, of course, is not yours, mister. They're not yours anymore. Do you see the point of the text? That's one reason why God calls this man a fool. Because he is living as if his life consists in the abundance of his possessions. He is living as if he's always going to have these things. And so his goal is, well, as the saying goes, he who dies with the most toys wins... But the truth of the matter is, as another saying is, you can't take it with you. And the reality is that he who dies with the most toys is just as dead as everybody else in the cemetery. You know, you could have house, land, cars, boats, jet skis, snowmobiles. You could have so many of those things, you need to build extra garages just to hold them in. And you could have financial plans, you could have money in the bank, you could have jewels, whatever you want. But I tell you the truth, when you die, none of it will be yours anymore. You will not get to enjoy it anymore. It will not be under your control. God will take it all away. And therefore, it is the height of foolishness. For us to act as if our life is about accumulating things and increasing in wealth. Wealth is just a temporary resource that God gives us to provide for us and to do good to others. But the key word is temporary. And therefore... We need to be living for something beyond what we can touch and see in this life. And what is that? What is that? What is it that is beyond this life? Well, to see that, let's turn to another passage in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 26. 
The Lord Jesus here speaks to us of two men, a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. In Luke 16, verse 19, we read, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, what is Jesus teaching us here? Well, the fourth lesson that we learn from Jesus about death and what comes afterwards is this. There are only two states of people after death. Jesus portrays very clearly here that there were two destinations and you had to go to either one or the other. Notice there is no purgatory in view here. There is no concept of purgatory in this passage of Scripture. And my friends, you will not find purgatory taught anywhere in the Bible. There is no teaching in the Bible that people who die and who are pretty good people, but perhaps not good enough, go to a place where they learn to be better until finally they get to go to heaven. That is not in the Bible. The Bible does not teach that people die and become ghosts and stay here on earth and haunt other people in places. The Bible does not tell us that people become angels when they die. The Bible does not tell us that people cease to exist when they die. The Bible does not say that when people die, their spirits dissolve back into the universal life force from which they supposedly came. The Bible does not teach reincarnation so that a person returns to earth in some other form. Jesus says there are two states after death. And what are those two states? That's the fifth thing that we see here. And that is this, that after death, people experience either unrelenting pain or comfort and companionship. Notice the case of the rich man. I mean, this, this man had a great life on earth. He lived like a king. 
He always dressed in the finest clothes. He feasted every day. Every day was a banquet day for him. But now he's in fire. He's he's begging for mercy. He's he's crying out that Lazarus would be sent just to just to take his finger and and dip it in a little water and put a drop of water upon his tongue. I suppose some skeptic might come along and say, "Well, what is what is this? I mean, come come on. I mean, if if the rich man's body is buried in the ground, he doesn't have a tongue. Lazarus doesn't have a finger. What is this? It's just a story. It's make believe." Listen, my friends, we have no language to describe the realities of spirits who have left behind their bodies. And so God, in his mercy, teaches us truths about the afterlife in language we can understand. The language of the body, the only language that we know. The question is, what is God teaching us here? And it is very clear that Christ is teaching us that sinners who die go to a place of unrelenting suffering. That this man who denied himself nothing that he desired when he was alive has now had every drop of good removed from his existence and all that he has left is pain, pain. And he is not given the least bit of relief from it. This is what Jesus is warning us of. And furthermore, think about Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus had a horrible life. I don't think any one of us would want to trade places with Lazarus lying there, desperately hungry, unable to provide for himself, neglected, despised, unclean. The only one who paid any attention to him was the dogs. But Lazarus knew the Lord, evidently. Lazarus was saved from his sins. And when he died, what happened to him? He went to a place of comfort. Verse 25, Abraham says, Lazarus is comforted here. And so just as the rich man is experiencing the wrath and anger of God against him for his sins, Lazarus is experiencing the love and mercy of God in a way that has healed him of all the pain and shame and terrible suffering that he experienced in this life, and he is comforted. And not only is he given comfort, but he receives companionship. Notice This man, when he dies, it says in verse 22, the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He's given an honor guard from heaven to escort him. Lazarus was a nobody in this world. He was some homeless guy laying out on the street. But he wasn't a nobody to God. And when he died... The very soldiers of heaven escorted him into God's presence. 
And there, there he is, he is brought not just to some, some other person who has died ahead of him. He's brought to Abraham. To, to the Jewish people, there was none greater than Abraham. He's honored. He becomes a friend of the great saints that have gone ahead of him. And the picture, perhaps, of him at Abraham's side or or at Abraham's bosom is of him next to Abraham at this feast or banquet, leaning up against Abraham as if they are the closest of friends. My friends, this, this is one reason why... When Christians start anticipating that they may die, they start talking about going home. Because they, they realize that, that when they die, they're going to go to a place where their true spiritual family already is. They're not going someplace where they're going to be alone. They're going to be with the dearest companions, the best of people, and they're going to enjoy fellowship with them. John Calvin said, Through death we are recalled from exile to dwell in the fatherland, in the heavenly fatherland. But notice, this is the sixth lesson. After death, it is impossible to change your state. After death, it is impossible to change your state. Abraham says in verse 26, Between us and you, speaking to the rich man in the flames, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It is impossible, Jesus is teaching us, for anyone to go from heaven to hell even if it was out of an act of mercy. And it is impossible for anyone in the flames of hell to escape and go to heaven. Once you die, your state is fixed, and it will not be changed. William Perkins said, As death leaves a man, So shall the last judgment find him, and so shall he abide eternally. So, my friends, this says to us that it is absolutely imperative that before we die, that we make sure that we will not go to the place of torment, but instead we will go to the place of comfort. But how can we know? How can we know? I remember when I was a teenager, one of the pastors of our church said, Paul, when you die, don't you think you're going to go to heaven? I said, I don't know. And I thought, how could I know? I didn't know what the Bible said. What does the Bible say? Well, let's go to our third passage and see what Jesus says. Luke chapter 23 We come now to consider Jesus Christ as he is dying on the cross and the interactions that he had with another man who was dying on another cross. You recall that when Jesus was placed upon the cross and crucified there for the sins of his people, he wasn't the only person dying on a cross. There were two thieves or robbers 
who were dying on crosses on either side of him. And we read in Luke 23 and verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. That means he was insulting him, mocking him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. God is teaching us here, and this is our seventh lesson, that only those who repent of sin and trust in Christ go to heaven when they die. Only those and all of those who repent of sin and trust in Christ go to heaven when they die. Notice this man on the cross next to Jesus. He's not a good man. There's a reason why he's on the cross. He has committed some great crime against other people. They didn't crucify common thieves. And he admits it. Can you imagine? He's he's been crucified. He's been nailed to a cross, and he says, I deserve this. He acknowledges, I have sinned in such a serious way that to be nailed to a cross is what I indeed deserve. I'm getting justice. But in the very act of acknowledging that, he's showing the change of mind that he has had. In fact, if you compare this passage to the other Gospels, you discover that when Jesus was first nailed to the cross, it wasn't one thief, but both thieves who were hurling insults and mockery at him and calling upon him that if it was really the Christ to let, to take them himself down and to get them down as well. Something happened. Something happened to this man as he watched Jesus die. God changed his heart. He stopped loving sin and blaming other people. He started hating sin and blaming himself. He stopped railing at Jesus and mocking him. And he started defending him. And he says to him, Remember me. When you come in your kingdom. He says this to a man next to him who's dying on the cross. A man in agony and weakness. But he believes. He believes that Jesus is the king. And that he will come in his kingdom. And he doesn't offer to Jesus any good works to make up for his sins. He doesn't bring anything to Jesus. What would he have to bring He simply says, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I deserve death. But would you have compassion on me? That's what remember means. Would you have mercy on me when you come in your kingdom? All he had to bring to Jesus was his sins. 
his confession. And Jesus accepted him. And Jesus promised him, promised this this bad man, this criminal who had repented and put his trust in him, that he would join Jesus in paradise. Don't you see the gospel here? Don't you see that no matter what you've done, no matter how many sins you've committed, no matter what crimes you may have done against your fellow man or woman, if you'll repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus says to you, just as he said to this man today, you will be with me in paradise. That is, when you die, you will go to heaven. But my friends, we cannot forget that there were two men on crosses next to Jesus, and he only said this to one of them. And we have no indication from the scriptures that the other man ever repented, and we have no word of promise for him. It is only those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus who will go to heaven when they die. And it is to them that Jesus gives this promise. It is to them that they can have that assurance and that hope that is in Jesus and in him alone. The hope that the Heidelberg Catechism says. Our great comfort to be able to say that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for my sins. That is the hope that we have. And it is a hope of an immediate deliverance into heaven. That's our eighth point, that believers in Christ go to heaven the very day they die. Jesus says, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no waiting. There's no sleeping in the ground for a thousand years or something like that. There's no process you have to go through. In fact, this man died very late in that day. There wasn't much time left, the Bible tells us. Before the day was done when he died. But Jesus says that very day, you'll be with me in paradise. And this is the great hope that we have, my friends. That when someone dies who is in Christ, someone who belongs to Jesus, who's been saved by his blood, before we can put their body in the ground, their spirit is already in heaven. They've been carried by the very angels there. They're already in glory already enjoying paradise. Now, the word paradise means a garden. And it's a word that's used in the Bible to point us back to the Garden of Eden, that that beautiful place where there was no suffering or death that God put mankind in when he first made us. But what is it that makes paradise paradise? What is it that makes heaven so good? It's striking that Jesus doesn't tell this this repentant thief much about paradise, but what he tells him is enough. Because he says, you will be with me. Folks, Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. 
Jesus is the glory of paradise. He is the joy that the souls of righteous men made perfect drink from day after day through all eternity. It is being with Jesus that our beloved dead enjoy without intermission, without hindrance. Jesus is heaven itself. And this is what he promises. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It is because of this that Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Therefore, my friends, let us not fear death if we belong to Jesus. Cyprian said, it is for him to fear death who is not willing to go to Christ. But for the one who loves Christ, for the one who wants to see his Savior, for the one who already rejoices in him, death is just the gateway. To glory. And this hope is what enables believers to commit their spirits to God when they die. And that's the tenth lesson that Jesus teaches us. Believers can commit their spirits to God when they die. As we see in verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. My friends, when Jesus said that, he was not just saying that in his own unique, special relationship with God. And we know that because Jesus was quoting the very words of David in Psalm 31.5, where David said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful God. And these are pretty much the same words that Stephen prayed with his dying breath in Acts 7.59. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, death can be hard. Death can be a very dark, difficult process. And you know, I I hope that when, when the time comes for you to die, that you will be able to die with loved ones with you. To to sit by your bed, to hold your hand, to, to sing hymns with you, to read scripture to you, just to be there. But you know, those loved ones can only go with you up to a point. They can walk with you up to the door of death but they can't go through it with you. But that doesn't mean you have to go through death alone. There is a loving Father who is there, a loving God that when you die, you can say, God, I don't know what this is going to be like. I've never done this before. But I know you, and I trust you, And I commit my spirit into your hand. 
and he will walk through the door of death with you and bring you safely into his glory so that death could be the deepest experience of the presence of God and the gateway to see his face. Oh, my friends, death need not hold any dread for Christians. But you must prepare for death. You must prepare for death. I once talked to a man who was a, a chaplain at a hospital, and, and I asked him, do you have any opportunities to, um, to share the gospel with people as they're dying? You know, I thought, what a great evangelistic opportunity. And he said, and he was an, he was an, an evangelical man. He believed in the gospel, but, but he said, honestly, not really. Because oftentimes when people get to that point, they're in so much pain, the medications that they're on, the failing of their organs, the clouding of their minds, they're just often not in a position to even think about anything. My friends, it is the height of foolishness to say that, wow, death, that's a big deal. When that starts to happen, I better deal with it. Listen, you don't know that you're even going to have a millisecond to think about it. You don't know, even if it stretches out for a long period of time, you don't know what kind of condition you're going to be in. You have got to start preparing for death now. And therefore, let me offer to you some applications here of these truths that we've heard. I'm just going to give you an acrostic with the word prepare. Okay? How to prepare for death. Number, well, not number one, the P. The P of prepare is peace with God. Peace with God. You're not ready to die until you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Make sure that your sins are forgiven and you are covered with the blood and righteousness of Christ. Do not rest until you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Because if you die without peace with God, that means you die as the enemy of God. And you're not prepared. The R of prepare is repentance. And for repentance there, I'm not talking about just that initial repentance where you turn to the Lord to be saved. I'm talking about repentance all the time. Listen, if you knew that you were going to be dying within, say, a couple of weeks, and you knew that there was a relationship where you had done somebody wrong and you'd never made it right, wouldn't you be saying to yourself, well, I better go talk to that person. I better go try and, and make it right. Or, or, you know, if you had something on your conscience that you said, I, I sinned there and I've never really dealt with it and I'm going to die soon, wouldn't that put a certain kind of holy pressure upon your conscience to say, I better make that right? 
Listen, why wait? Why wait? Why risk the possibility that since you're going to be too stubborn to repent of some sin that you've committed, that that you might leave this world and leave behind a mess for other people to deal with? And deep regrets because of broken relationships, things that were never set right. Because, listen to me, when you die, there will be no more opportunity to fix it. Repentance, all the time, is the motto of the person who is prepared to die. The E in prepare is eternity. Eternity. Live with eternity constantly on your mind. If you were to diagram your existence, of course, there's a starting point, right? And then there would be a line. And the line goes on forever, right? Because you will exist forever. But don't you understand that in comparison to eternity, all of your life here on this earth is still on the dot? What really is going to last, what really is going to matter, is not about the way that your experience was for these 50 to 100 years. Some of us have less. It's going to be for the thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand, million, ten million, and on into eternity years that you will exist. Live conscious that eternity is the measure of the meaning of your life. And let that shape the decisions that you make, not just the here and now. The second P in prepare is practice. Practice. And you may say, what, practice dying? Yes. Practice dying. This is what I mean. When you die, you will be compelled to let go of all earthly treasures and pleasures and honors and even people And if you're a Christian, you will let go of these things to go to Jesus. Practice dying today. Whenever you are faced with the choice between honoring and trusting and glorifying Jesus and hanging on to some earthly pleasure or treasure, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Say no to this, say yes to him, and you will practice dying. So that when the day comes when you actually have to let go of all these things, it won't be that big of a deal to you. Because you will have chosen Jesus over and over and over again, as opposed to the things of this world. You will find it easy to die if you have died every day in self-denial. The A of prepare is activity. Activity. Sometimes we play these games where um, there's a, a timer that gets started, or there's that little hourglass that you flip, and you've got to get as many cards or points as you possibly can before it runs out, right? And so you're trying to go as fast as you can to get as much as you can done. Well, listen, 
There is an hourglass running out for every single one of us. And we can't see it. We don't know how much sand is left there. I was thinking about this when I was driving over here. I was thinking, you know, I could come out here, preach this sermon on death, and never make it home. Could be true of you, too. We don't know how much time we have left. So the point is, get busy doing good. God has given you this time to do good in the world. He's given you certain gifts, talents, spiritual gifts, resources, relationships, a circle of influence in your family, work, neighborhood. Get busy doing good because the time will come when you can't do anything more for your children, for your grandchildren. For your neighbor, for that coworker, you have a limited amount of time, and when the timer dings, you're done. Live a life of holy activity. And you might be saying, oh, but I, I can't really do much of anything, you know, I'm... I, I'm not that gifted, or, or maybe you're sickly, or, or you think about people who are old, they're in the nursing home, or something like that. Listen, can you pray? Can you pray? Can you, can you write a list down of people that you know who are Christians and who aren't Christians? And can you pray for them? Can you, can you pour out your heart and petition for the salvation of lost sinners and for God's children that, that they would grow spiritually? Yes, you can pray. Do so. Could you, could you write a little note to somebody, a, a card or an email or a text and say, hey, you know what, I just want to let you know I've been praying for you. Or how are you doing today? You know, if you're conscious and able to communicate, frankly, even if you can't communicate with other people, if you can just communicate with God, you can be busy and active. A is for activity. R is for resources. The reality of death and heaven and hell should cause us to realize that our resources are a temporary stewardship. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of the parable of the rich fool? After God said these things that you've prepared, whose will they be? Jesus' comment on this was, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Your resources, your money, your possessions are temporary stewardships that God has given to you, yes, to provide for your needs, for your family, so that you can enjoy your life, but so that you can use them to help the poor, to support the ministry of the church, to send forth missionaries to the world. Regard your possessions as things that really aren't yours because they're not. They're temporary loans from God and he will take them back and he will also call you to account for how you use them while you were here. Use your resources while you can before death takes you 
for his glory. And then the last E of prepare is this. It's enjoyment. Enjoyment. And I speak here particularly of the enjoyment of Christ. If heaven, in its essence, is enjoying Christ, then why not start enjoying heaven now? One of the Puritans, when he was dying, was reported to have said, I will change my place, but I will not change my company. In other words, he had spent his life fellowshipping with the Lord, walking with God, enjoying God through, through reading the scriptures, praying to him, fellowshipping with other believers, using the public means of grace by going to church, hearing the preaching and teaching of the word, but not just as an outward exercise so that he might know Christ better so that he might draw closer to Christ. And so when he dies, yes, he will change his location, but he will be keeping the same company that he has always kept since God saved him. Learn to enjoy Christ now, children of God, and there will be something of heaven in you before you go to heaven. Let's pray. O 